I'm Jen. And I'm Yansu. And you're listening to Auth Ethnic, a podcast with real conversations about race and social issues in America. As a mix of Chinese, Korean, and Chicana, we give the mic to people, stories, and topics that aren't always talked about in the Asian American community. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Auth Ethnic podcast. Today we're going to be talking about colonialism in Asian food and the systems of power at play in our food. But before we begin, uh, we just want to let people know, our non-American listeners know that, you know, this is Thanksgiving week and we want to honor those whose lands that we're standing on right now. And um, I want to acknowledge the Tutalo and Saponi tribes in Maryland. And in San Francisco, I am currently in Olone, the Olone people's land. So today, we're just going to be covering colonialism in food. You're going to be interested in the format and the way we uh, mm. talk about this. Uh, and then we're going to talk about the movement to decolonize your diet. And then we're going to finish off with a interesting discussion. Is fusion food bad? Or maybe are you a colonist if you're partaking in fusion food? I don't know. We'll see. Spicy hot take. Yonsu, you're the one who proposed that we do this episode. So I'm curious where you got your inspiration from. I was at a local Filipino restaurant. As I was waiting for my food, I was just looking at the environment around me. And I am literally in this box of colonialism, imperialism happening around me. The food that I ordered contained pork. There was a Catholic shrine. <laughs> you know, that's all from the Spanish colonization of the Philippine Islands. And then the, the U.S. soldiers coming in for lunch, you know, I assumed that uh, at least a soldier or two were uh, Philippine X themselves. So it really got me wondering what foods do we currently enjoy that are actually products of colonialism? There's a lot of Spanish words or, or like even a combination of fusion of words, tocino, uh, calamares, lechon, adobo, torta, pata, guisado, and then like word fusions like ensaladang. And then of course, Chinese influence um, with the pancit canton. And of course, lumpia, the ever so popular uh, spring roll is based off of the Chinese spring roll. Um, but mm -hmm. I will actually say hot take. I think lumpia is better than Chinese egg rolls. And oh! Chinese culture and history and intertwining like it is a great way to kick off that conversation of colonialism. The thing that kind of jumped out at me is bun mi. For those who know what bun mi is, it's like this collision course, mm. <laughs> product of a collision course of French and Viet ingredients. Mm -hmm. All right. Like you got the, your Viet ingredients, you got the jalapenos, the uh, daikon, grilled meats, herbs um, as like your Viet ingredients. And then in terms of French ingredients, you got the pate, uh, the baguette. Uh, mayo. I've heard certain Viet folks, not going to name who, who are like, if it wasn't for the French, we wouldn't have bun mi. French colonialism was a good thing. Oh, shit. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm not even Viet, but I know that's a wrong answer. <laughs> Why? There's no reason to celebrate French colonialism. Was bun mi the goal of French colonialism or was it a byproduct of French colonialism? You're, when you're eating this or when bun mi is created or when colonialism is happening, right? Who is benefiting? And at the same time, you got to think about who is forgotten. So yeah, you got these French and Vita ingredients, this manifestation of two cultures melding into something new and different, but that doesn't definitely not give any justification or a pass on the legacy of impact of colonialism or imperialism. Sorry. No, it's okay. And rant. 
a little hot right now. If you're looking for something that's hot, may I introduce our next fusion food, which is karage. I guess it was colonialism in the sense of having to forcefully open up their borders. This influx and influence of Western and European culture. But for karage, that was actually influenced by, pause for effect, Chinese cuisine. Chinese? Uh, Yes, just yet another thing that Japanese people take from my culture. God. Hot take. There's going to be a lot of hot takes in here, y'all. Not again. Not again. Yet again. Just taken from the Chinese. But yes, so the karage became popular in the 1920s due to how Chinese people pan fried tofu with soy sauce. But really the first deep fried food to take hold in Japan was actually tempura. And Mm. that was likely introduced by Portuguese by the end of the 16th century. Um, Mm. And the popularization of tempura was due to the increased availability of rapeseed oil. Also fun fact, the Portuguese had very, were the only European uh, power that had exclusive trading rights with Japan uh, for a very, very long time until Matthew Perry's like, knock, knock, USA, bitches. Like, FBI, you better open up. Talk up. FBI, open up. Yeah, they're like, oh, shit. Exactly. So with that exclusivity came the introduction of oil as fat, as a basis of making that and hence deep frying. I think it's important too to also note the colonial powers in play for Taiwanese popcorn chicken. A delicious, iconic uh, night market street food snack. And it was based off of American style fried chicken. Um, Really? Yes, in the 60s and 70s. And that is the influx of American food culture in Taiwan is often attributed to the heavy presence of the United States Air Force. That was there. Mm. Speaking of like the American military and like American mm. influence, um, is there another dish that you know, Yansu, that is influenced heavily by military presence? Yes. Uh, our next course, wonderful listeners, oh. is Pudechige, aka uh, Army Stew. Okay, Pude in Korean is Army Base, okay. and then Chige means stew. So another way to uh, called pudechige or yeah pudechige is jonsan tang uh tang comes from the chinese word tang like the soup but jonsan is y'all like, take it well, from me y'all taking chinese shit <laughs> oh no, it's your imperial shit that's why it's okay y'all. oh here we go bro imperial. i swear to god chinese imperial system listen oh. but wait 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 you see we're supposed to have solidarity against japanese people oh that's right yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. it's okay yeah. it's okay that we're was cool. past <laughs> Big brother, younger brother. Got it. Confucianism. Got it. <laughs> but yeah, so you got your your pudechige, uh, aka Johnson tang, tang from coming from the Chinese word soup, right? And then Johnson is the Korean Korean pronounced of Johnson, like you know any American last name Johnson. Oh my god! Yeah, Wait, Johnson so tang. like why Johnson? Oh, like the soldiers' last names, right? You would see it. So then Koreans would just see it and be like, oh, Johnson, Johnson, Johnson. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So that so Koreans grew up learning English because of the military. Like that's how my grandfather uh, learned. Like chocolate, shoe shine, shoe shine. Chocolate, uh, give me, gum, give me. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, like pudichige is for some reason really enjoy it. I see it on the menu all the time. I often, I well, like I actually ate it for the first time at a karaoke bar, a Korean karaoke bar. (laughs) I didn't really like it at all. I mean, it had like spam 
Was it greasy? Tobaki, greasy. Yeah, it was just all this uh, heavily processed food. It is. And there's a reason why. You know, a lot of people like it because it's so associated with South Korean culture. You know, you got Hallyu happening. Right, Hallyu wave. And, you know, yeah. that soft power. Right. But, you know, this is a legacy. It's a darker history right here. It's a, it's a legacy of starvation and Cold War power struggle. And mm. uh, let me break it down for you. Like everything, 1953. Right, armistice, ceasefire between North and South Korea. Everything was in ruins. South Korea was very, very poor. Um, people are starving, mm-hmm. right? And death and starvation. So Koreans were scavenging, uh, looking for food, right? And where did oh. who had the most food in the country? The U.S. Army. Of course. So the U.S. Army was dumping stuff in their uh, trash dumps. So. So, I mean, just stuff that my dad told me is that they would scavenge the uh, the military trash dumps for food and they'll be left over eating hot dogs, spam, canned meat. And like, well, that's food, that's meat. And then you would cook it. And sometimes you would even find like cigarette butts oh my from, God. you know, as you pour, you know, as you cook it with, the, you know, kimchi and, and, and stuff like that. So then, yeah, like made in USA, like my uncle who I asked a few quick questions a few days ago about pudechige. He was telling me like, first of all, anything made in USA, like when you talk about brands made in USA was considered very valuable because Mm -hmm. South Korea had nothing. It was all destroyed. So, you know, he was talking about sea rations. I have no idea how this guy knows about sea rations. Sea rations are like a type of military uh, ration food. And he's like, yeah, it had corned beef, sausage, ham, hot dog, spam, right? So then all this stuff was too greasy for the average Korean because, you know, most Koreans actually traditionally did not grow up eating meat, contrary mm. to popular belief. Or stuff that's saturated in, like, fats, right? Yeah, like we fat. talked about previously. Yo, you want you want real Korean food? Come over to my dad's house. We don't eat meat at all. We're, like, semi-vegetarian. So, you know, this was too greasy, so they added kimchi, right? It's almost like kimchi jjigae. But then, um, you know, and eventually the ramen, cheese, and beans, and all that other stuff was added later. Tokuki added later. In America, these pro- canned processed meats are considered low-quality foods, but in it was co- coveted items in post-war South Korea, right? And it's a sign of wealth and power when you got to have these things. Mm. And, you know, so my uncle lived near Kimpo Airport and there was near a military base at the time. So PX is called Post Exchange. That's where all the goods are being traded, bought and sold for service members and whatnot. So he had, his family had access to American products and you would use them to give gifts to when you go visit people. <laughs> and he, would, he was telling me how Americans actually sell these things like they would smuggle it out of the base and they would sell it in the south korean black market the thing that boggled me about this was that the mil- the u.s military knew that there was a black market and people were smuggling off base and they encouraged it because they want um koreans to get hooked on american products mm, capitalism right so you know when you brought these made in america goods um to your friend's house as gifts it's a strong flex right there right because you know, spam equals meat, meat equals wealth, wealth is social status. And power. Literally the example of soft power right there, right? The American brand is, is strong. You back it up with military, like hard power. Um, so, hey, folks, if you have parents who came from or immigrated from a country where there was a U.S. military base, uh, ask them what kind of brands they, they like or they might remember about food, drinks or utilities. 
I'm pretty sure one of them may or may not be spam. Um, because spam is in Korean army stew. And I think another important spam product, uh, and this will be our side dish to accompany the main dish would be of course the iconic spam musubi. What you said, Yonsu about military bases and covering the military presence in Asia. I think there are spam dishes in places where there were military Bases and like spam kind of followed wherever the military went. So there's spam dishes in Korea, in the Philippines, uh, Japan, Guam, and of course Hawaii, which I think is what a lot of people identify spam musubi mm-hmm. with. At least I do. Like if yeah. I go to a poke yeah. restaurant or like a poke bar, um, I expect to sort of see spam musubi on the menu. The creation of Spam Musubi is also has to do with World War II. So again, tying it to the military um, and eating canned food that was shipped to them. Um, And Spam Musubi was born in Hawaii, but was not actually created by the native peoples of Hawaii. Yeah, it was it was actually made or it's credited to be made by Barbara Funamura, who is a Japanese-American woman living in Hawaii. But for many Japanese-Americans, their love for Spam actually began with some more painful memories, similar to the ones you described for Korean Army stew. Uh, The U.S. government also sent canned meat to the Japanese incarceration camps across America, where Mm. Japanese-Americans were forcefully detained from 1942 to 1945. You know, as we talk about spam and, you know, just dishes in general that have painful memories attached to them for older generations that had to endure these things like scrounging for food and trash. But then seeing our generations and younger generations sort of commodifying and finding it cool. Like it's cool to eat at a karaoke bar to eat Korean army stew. It's cool to eat spam musubi at a poke place. Do you see that as a good or bad thing, Yonsu? As a history teacher, I'm going to be very typical and say it's complicated. (laughs) Wow. It sounds more like a lawyer to me personally. It's complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, this is complicated, right? Because Mm. there's so many different experiences or when you're introduced to this type of food, right? Were you even aware what was going on? Like we so, have no recollection. We didn't have to endure the same things that older generations had to endure. Yeah. And then even the older generation, it's a mixed range, right? Like mm-hmm. my uncle's like, yeah, like canned meat. I, I, I love it. And he's a picky eater, right? But then there, but you were telling me that there was a Asian grandmother who was like, no, I, I, I refuse to eat that stuff. Like, that yeah. Was like I would refuse right? to eat that because of the painful memories that were attached to that. Right. And I think as, you know, critically thinking people like, you know, in this podcast, we encourage all our listeners and ourselves to constantly critique and question everything is like, you know, what does the food provide for you? Mm. Is it something that you don't know? And you're just like, it's a fad and you're just in it because everyone else is doing it. Or is there a different attachment to it? Are you like me who grew up eating spam? And for me, I continue to eat it maybe once or twice a year um, as more of like emotional memory, emotional, like homage to my grandmother, maybe spam and canned meat is a symbol of resilience uh, uh, and survival, right? Maybe right. that is that that's associated to it. But the weight of history is in every bite. We're not saying this to make you feel depressed or like, oh my God, is everything related to imperialism? Uh, yeah, maybe. But like, <laughs> still, 
you know, it, it, it shows that you're more self-aware as a person, right? Like, you know that there's stories attached to this. And when you know the, the depth of this, this food, food is a form of communication and story behind it. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think it's always important to know your history, uh, to know where things came from. And for me personally, I think it's always fun. Like, if I really love a particular dish. Um, I am usually curious to know like where it came from, which can lead me into a, a couple of desserts for us on our Thanksgiving menu, Asian fusion course, journey, train, boat, turkey, date. <laughs> that was a lot of words. Um, <laughs> I'll just say now for dessert. So I have a couple of Cantonese pastries that are also heavily influenced by uh, Western culture. First, of course, is the iconic egg tart, the Chinese egg tart that everybody lo- knows and loves. It's actually based off of Portugal and Portugal's pastel de nata. That's because the Portuguese occupied Macau. And then my personal favorite, the bolo bao, or like the pineapple bun. Um, it, it is usually traced back to British and European influences with the introduction of butter and shortening uh, that define that crumbly, buttery goodness on top. Uh, or I've always felt that it resembles a Mexican concha as well. Um, so oh. if you don't know well, what that is, it's basically the same thing. So it has like a really spongy sort of bread roll base. And then a concha has the similar sort of crusting, um, except it's more sugar-based and sort of like, kind of like icing almost. Um, so I wanted to do some research because being Chinese Mexican, I wanted to see if there was actually uh, some ties between Mexican and Chinese culture. And lo and behold, there actually is. So in Hong Kong, they sell something called a mushigo bao, which literally translates to Mexico bun or like Mexican bun. And I was like, mm, holy shit. So Yansu, I put on my history cap. You should be so proud of me as someone who does not. Oh God, you got an A. Oh shit. Hell yeah. But I did some <laughs> digging and um, there's a professor, Julia Maria Chivon Camacho, who is the author of a book literally called Chinese Mexicans. And she says the birth of the Mexico bun came from the transmigration of Chinese people back to Canton, so back to Southern China, after being forcefully deported by the Mexican government. So first of all, our menu was lacking a lot of leafy greens and I'm gonna blame that on white people. So <laughs> so yeah, now that we're, we're full of gluten, uh, processed food, oil, <laughs> grease and fat. Carbs. Carbs, my favorite, my personal favorite. I know, me too. I think it's interesting to talk about the opposite of colonization and talking about decolonization especially during thanksgiving um there's been a new sort of movement Mm. to decolonize your diet so to speak um is on the west coast well california is sort of a special place so i guess i wouldn't be surprised if uh we're the ones who started it. But I also think food is something that's super personal and individualistic. It's a very personal choice. But the practice of decolonizing is basically deconstructing colonialism and these colonialist ideologies that we've inherited. So when we talk about decolonizing your diet, we're actually trying to reconnect with the healthier ways to nourish ourselves with how our ancestors used to make things. 
And I think that's something really interesting to talk about, especially now with Thanksgiving and how you, Yonsu, helped us open up our episode to talk about the Indigenous peoples uh, whose land we're standing on now here in America. How can we sort of practice that this Thanksgiving and even beyond? Um, I think it's important to learn the roots of our culture or cultures, if you're mixed like me, and try to incorporate more of what your ancestors ate. Western people fucking up my body because we can't fucking process that. Like lactose, cheese, right? Like Asians' obsession with cheese and like cheese and ramyeon. I mean, we joke about it all the time on subtle Asian traits, right? Ha ha, that we're all lactose intolerant, but we'll do it for the boba or we'll do it for the, the cheese ramen and shit right but like our bodies weren't equipped to have that because that wasn't in our diets that wasn't mm-hmm. in our system to begin with but then when it's forced upon when it's marketed to us take it we inherit it we perpetuate it like but our bodies are kind of sort of speaking to us like hey like this isn't really what we know like you were saying like at your dad's house right like you eat a lot of plant-based stuff like korea uh, was is known or was known to eat a lot of plant-based stuff, fermented foods, right? But then with yeah. the introduction of capitalism and wealth, like now I, and I think a lot of people who ride that Korean way of the Hallyu wave know it for Korean barbecue, for being very meat heavy, meat all they talk about. It's kind of getting annoying. Right. <laughs> like, but like originally it was plant-based out of necessity, like out of necessity. Yeah, because meat uh, was expensive. Like right. my grandfather ate meat like twice a year. Like there's mm. there's Korea's like seventy five percent mountains. Yeah, and um, like I just I just hate it when like white people are like, oh, it's so hard to be vegan and be able to eat Asian food. It's like, bitch, like you don't even fucking understand. Like, <laughs> almost all Asian countries were plant based. Yeah, plant centric at the very least. I mean, so it's actually not that hard to be vegan or vegetarian and eat Asian food. I, I do agree with you. I think. There is a, a value to recognizing pre-Western contact diets. And, you know, this goes with globalization. There's the pros and cons of it. You get this exchange of ideas and you create new things like on me, right, as a byproduct. Right. But some of the downsides of globalization is a lot of your local indigenous ingredients or ways of life can be in danger of yeah. being erased, right? So if we're supposed to decolonize our diet, does that mean we have to stop eating fusion food? And because, you know, all this fusion food is is a byproduct of East meets West and, and fusion food. And if it's meant with West and colonialism, imperialism, then I'm eating bad stuff. And does that make me a bad person, Jen? Mm, I don't think eating Asian fusion or like what the dishes we've described above. Like, I don't think eating Asian fusion is bad, but I think it's bad when white people do it. I, I hate it when when white people capitalize off of Asian fusion. So like when they own a restaurant, they're the chef of like an Asian fusion restaurant or worse, when they uh, own a restaurant that's Asian and they call it authentic Asian food. Oh boy. What if they like really enjoy it and honor it, right? No? i just feel like white people are orientalizing us like they definitely orientalize and other our food in writing so like bon appetit eater articles that always talk about this oh like this is so exotic and like these different flavors and spices i'm like bitch we've been here forever like this has been in our food like asian inspired flavors yeah what the fuck is that like tell me what the fuck is that is that salt and like fresh cracked pepper for you like is that 
Is that what it is? And like, maybe like a little, like one pepper of Sichuan. I used to live in Austin, Texas, and you know, there's a big foodie culture there, but something that always pissed me off was people who would always recommend Uchi and Uchiko. They are sushi restaurants created by and run by Chef Tyson Cole. What I hate is that people like white people and like non-white people and like they feel like they have to justify or defend their reasoning to me because they always say oh well he's actually a legit sushi chef because he worked under a real Japanese sushi chef for seven years you are creating the narrative for Japanese food and you're white like you are telling the narrative of Japanese people in Austin and I'm not comfortable with that I mean, I have two. No, I have two. And like, I wasn't impressed. I wasn't really like, congrats. You can like make a fucking good avocado roll. Like, thanks. Thanks. Uh But to me, I I think um, I need to draw a little bit from Orientalism and the seduction of difference. Like how it's easy for Chef Tyson Cole to still keep his position as a white man, but to dabble in Japanese cuisine, to fetishize... Mm. Uh, Japanese cuisine and and make a profit off of it. He profits off of Japanese people and Japanese culture, plain and simple. He can be the white man's guide to the Orient. Because I just feel like white people are notorious for rebranding us and telling us who we are. Like the word curry was created by British people to sort of group a large portion of Indian cuisine that had, you know, soupy, a thick, soupy flavor or soupy consistency single box monolithic box a monolithic box of calling it curry but indian people were not quick to criticize that because that was marketable Mm. and profitable and indian people saw that in in britain so they actually capitalized off of that too and we see a lot of curry and i guarantee you i i am the same person i raise my hand the first thing that comes to mind when i think of indian food is curry but that word is meaningless in indian cuisine there is no curry there is no curry but it was created Mm -hmm. by white people for them to sort of digest us for them to see us as a digestible people do do, do you think they're being lazy yeah i think they're totally being lazy instead of of knowing these specific indian cuisine or dishes yeah like oh just umbrella yeah, it's all curry. Y'all are the same. Y'all, y'all look, y'all look all the same to me. Yeah, no, I, it's like call it by its name, like call the dish by its actual name. But I think it's also important to note that we as Asians also play into this exploitation. Like I said, how you know Indian people in Britain when curry was introduced, they they totally played that up and added that to their menus. But I think we also do that in like our decor, the way that you know some Asian modern like millennials millennial owners Uh, now sort of play up to the oriental decor and like uh, they have their waiters and waitresses dress up in like oriental clothing like our traditional clothing um and i really think the only restaurant or type of restaurant that can get away with like oriental decor is like dim sum restaurants like it's supposed to be fucking tacky as fuck like it's supposed to be tacky (laughs) if they don't have like a plastic golden dragon and like those pink tablecloths then it's not a real dim sum restaurant i'm sorry (laughs) at the giant stage for for uh uh receptions and events with a giant like symbol in the back and like chinese character but just to go back to austin like I, again, will tell you how much I hate the ramen Tatsuya family and dip, dip, dip Tatsuya. Like, fuck that place. 
tell, 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 tell me more. What, what, what's going on? So what's Dip 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 is the Tatsuya Monopoly's newest restaurant that is a Shabu Shabu restaurant in Austin. They literally charge like a hundred dollars for Shabu Shabu. That's like hot pot for everybody, just so you know. You're sending the wrong message about Asian food to white people in Austin. You know, you're gonna exploit them by orientalizing yourself. You're orientalizing mm. us. This is mystical like hot pot is this upscale thing when really it's not it's literally sitting down with a pair of like Qingdao beers or like biru right you just sit down like with some cushions and whatever you gather around a table with your portable heater you light up some stuff like i mean it's supposed to be homely low-key casual this is like japanese americans in austin who own this monopoly and they're they're perpetuating or they're trying to recreate this narrative that's just false that's not us and now white people in austin are, are going to think that and they're going to take their asian friends to this upscale place when really it's not and oh, that pisses God. me off too as you can clearly tell yeah no I, uh, I i i see i see what you're saying i think one part of it it's like orientalize it so it it wets their palate you know their cultural right. palate Dabble. And then you charge them up. So part of me, is, part of me is like, yeah, charge these non-Asian people, make them pay. But then I guess like it goes back to the question, like, well, what's the cost, right? Isn't that also damaging? Because then they still think right. the same thing about us. They still see us as the other, the perpetual foreigner. Can there even be a balance of creating a restaurant like that that can, that can help you survive in the Austin food scene while not? perpetuating orientalist yeah i don't think you have to like decor the fuck out of your restaurant what you're posing out there like what your mm. menu is i think you should just own it completely and not have to have this like fake image behind you to justify that to white people so i guess my hot take is like yeah i think we should still be able to eat asian fusion food even with decolonizing our diet um but I think we should eat fusion that is cooked and owned by bipoc i think it's important that we should support mm our communities of color. Um, but, you know, if you're not comfortable with a restaurant that is self-orientalizing, then call it out on Yelp. Like, call call them out on it. Like, True. I think we need to take more control of our own narrative. And just as we decolonize our diets, I think we can decolonize the way we market ourselves in restaurants, in the restaurant industry. And I get it. It's going to be hard because business, customers, and and, and you got to make ends meet. It's tough, but I can see, you know, why you're saying that this is actually an opportunity of self-empowerment. And I think it's similar to like something that you said before. And I think something that we can kind of close off with as food for thought, <laughs> pun, but food for thought. <laughs> yeah, nice. but you know, food is meant to be shared and melded into something new and different, just like the dishes that we've kind of described and sort of figuratively served you this Thanksgiving week, but it doesn't forgive the impact that colonialism and power structures have had on us and our cuisine. Thanks for joining us today. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast. Share this episode with your friends, your family, coworkers, or anyone you know who wants authenticity around ethnicity. This is Jen. This is Yansu. Ignite conversations with people around you. And be excellent to yourself. <laughs> <laughs>